This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you live from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa, and online it's www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, and I'm driving the show with Onelin Sinsi, Wissani Matebula, and Mosibudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Zimbabweans wait for the ruling on the court challenge on the July 30 election outcome. Kenyan human rights groups take to the streets to protest continued detention of prominent Ugandan musician and opposition member of parliament. And in economics, Deputy Executive Director of AgriSA says a tweet by US President creates more racial polarization as it contains inaccurate facts. In your sports, later, one of South Africa's leading marathon runners invited to the 2018 New York City Marathon. But first, Time for us to find out what is happening in the world of news with Onelin Sinsi. Thank you, Samara. The U.S. Department of State is doing damage control following President Donald Trump's tweet about South Africa's shifting land policy. The department has issued a statement admitting that it is aware that President Cyril Ramaphosa has pledged that the land reform process will follow the rule of law and its implementation will not affect economic growth, agricultural production or food security. The statement contradicts Trump's tweet that he will instruct his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, to closely study South Africa's land policy. Meanwhile, South Africa's Minister of International Relations, Lindy Wesisulu, will communicate with Pompeo on, how, on what she calls the unfortunate comment by Trump. Officials have confirmed that the U.S. Department of State statement is authentic. It calls South Africa a strong democracy with resilient institutions, including a free press and an independent judiciary. Minister Sisulu has instructed her department to meet with the U.S. Embassy in Pretoria to seek clarification on the matter today, saying it is regrettable that Trump's tweet is based on false information. Meanwhile, South Africa's Land Reform Minister, Mai Dengwane Mashabane, says the country should be given space to sort out its land challenges. This is our South Africa. This is our land. This is where we live. Only solutions of land reform that are South African will work in South Africa. Partnership in South Africa has helped us defeat apartheid, had helped us sign off our constitution. So this is our country. I'm a former ambassador. I'm a former minister of international relations. I know that only solutions that come from where we live work. Kenyan human rights defenders took to the streets of Nairobi to protest against continued detention of prominent Ugandan musician and opposition member of Parliament Robert Kiagulanyi. Also known as Bobby Wine, the lawmaker and his co-accused have been remanded until the 30th of August. James Shimanyula, who was at the scene of the protest, explains. Hundreds of Kenyans demonstrated in Nairobi pushing for the release of Ugandan musician Bobby Wine. They sang songs in praise of the musician here in Nairobi singing freedom songs and songs to praise the musician that the court has ordered should be remanded in custody until the 30th of this month of August when he will appear in court again for the magistrate to make a ruling whether or not 
he has to appear before a judge. Zimbabwean police have arrested a critic of Emerson Nangagwa on charges of insulting the president in a Facebook post. A well-known critic of Nangagwa, Munyaradzi Shoko, was held after he posted statements on Facebook saying the president's name was generally associated with evil and devilish deeds. Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights spokesperson Kombirai Mafunda says Shoko has been charged with criminal nuisance. Nangagwa won the presidential election, though the results are being challenged in court. And lastly, the government of Tanzania has placed directed regional medical officers and other public authorities across the country in the hope of strengthening surveillance in an effort to prevent Ebola outbreak in the country. Tanzania's Deputy Minister of Health and Social Welfare, Community Development, Gender, Elderly and Children, Dr. Faustin Nungulile, says the alert is made following confirmation of the outbreak of the killer disease in the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo, the East African country is bordering the DRC in southwest. Tanzania is on a high alert because of the outbreak of Ebola in the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo and we've already taken some measures to make sure that the borders in Tanzania are well protected to ensure that whoever comes in with, with the suspected case of Ebola are handled properly. Channel African News, I'm Oni Onele will be back at half past five Central African time in order to give you the news headlines. But right now, let's move along to Zimbabwe, where yesterday's uh, yesterday Zimbabwe's constitutional court heard the opposition party challenge the results of the recent presidential elections in the country, which saw the victory of ZANU-PF's Emerson Mnagwagwa. The capital, Harare, was heavily secured with police barricading the streets. Now, after arguments from the opposition MDC claiming gross mathematical errors in the counting of ballots, the Chief Justice of the Central Africa uh, Chief Justice of the Court announced that the ruling will be made public tomorrow at uh, 1400 hours Central African time. Now, last month, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission declared Nakwagwa narrowly won with 50.8% of the vote, uh, avoiding a runoff. It is said the opposition, uh, we earlier spoke to, oh, it is said that opposition candidate Nelson Chamisa received 44.3%. Now, to help us discuss the situation, we earlier spoke to Professor Galibo Khamapunya of the Department of Political Sciences at the University of South Africa and of Derek Martizak, uh, an analyst and researcher at the Institute of Security Studies in Harare. Zimbabwe's 2018 uh, July 30 election has obviously you know, resulted in a dispute which is the worst-case scenario for uh, people who are in election management. Normally, the best-case scenario is to have an election, have uh, you know the outcome declared, and that uh, you know the winners accept that they have lost. I mean, they have won, and that uh, the losers uh, you know also accept, and and then you move on. But now, in this case, uh, we are back to the courts, and uh, you know, as you rightly mentioned today, the, uh, the court set yesterday, and we are now expecting a verdict tomorrow, apparently. But uh, the issue of the double count is obviously, you know, something that has come out uh, in 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 the uh, you know apparently in the court papers of the opposition, as well as uh, these uh, alleged ghost polling stations. Uh, just to recap, uh, you know, when the election was held, you know, because of the three phases of the election, the pre election phase, the election day, you know, scenario, as well as the post-election phase. The first two, in my view, went, uh, you know, um, very well. Uh, in a sense that, uh, you know, the violence that we had uh, we been accustomed to in terms of Zimbabwe's elections was not really, you know, seen. However, uh, this changed, you know, in the post-election when, uh, you know, we uh, ended up with uh, six deaths and about, uh, you know, uh, more than 18 or 20 people arrested and um, uh, the situation has, you know, deteriorated since then. Derek, what are your thoughts on uh, this post-election environment that we're seeing, especially some of the claims that we've seen from the opposition? Well, the, the election was certainly not conducted in a fair environment. The playing field was heavily uh, tilted against the MDC alliance and uh, the ruling parties on APF and Emerson Munangagwa certainly uh, abused state resources uh, to the enormously to their advantage. There's, there's not really uh, any way you can say that the election was conducted fairly. 
the immediate bias, the control over the rural population uh, through the abuse of state resources, etc., prevents one from making that assessment. But certainly the elections were conducted without uh, much of the violence that we are used to in, in previous elections. Uh, there was more uh, ability or freedom to campaign by the opposition parties, etc. Uh, but ultimately that power of incumbency and that uh, ability to command the rule of vote uh, led to a victory by, by ZANU-PF and Emerson Munangagwa. And uh, what were your thoughts on yesterday's arguments that were made by the opposition, especially the claims around uh, the um, ghost polling stations and those double counts that they were citing? Well, the big problem that uh, the MDC Alliance has and the the problem that MDC Alliance has uh, vis-a-vis its supporters is that from a very early point in time, in fact, right from the 31st of July, the alliance officials were saying that they had the polling station returned, the, the documents that are completed when the counting is done at the polling station. They said they had the polling station returned, which proved that Chamisa had won the elections resoundingly. And they then later claimed that uh, the Electoral Commission had changed the numbers, that the numbers on the official uh, electoral commission's results did not match the numbers on those polling station returns. So that was the promise made uh, by NDC Alliance and Chimisa. It was a promise made to their supporters that they would go to court and they would show these returns to not match the results produced by the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission. That never happened. And there's not really any clear explanation as to why that did not happen. So many people are thinking that uh, the NDC Alliance and Chamisa have misled the public, that have misled their supporters, that they never, ever had this evidence showing that the polling station returns did not match the Electoral Commission's results. Analyst and researcher at the Institute of Security Studies, Derek Martizak, joining us from Harare, Zimbabwe. And you also heard from Professor Kalebo Khamapunye of the Department of Political Sciences at the University of South Africa. And they were speaking to Benjamin Mushatama. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says under the current land reform process, it would take close to about close to or about a century before government meets its target of land redistribution. He's also said that due to budgetary constraints, government would be unable to buy land from willing sellers. Parliament is currently involved in a process to amend Section 25 of the Constitution to allow for expropriation of land without compensation. Ramaphosa says people are demanding the government speed up land reform. More from constitutional law expert, Professor Pierre DeFosse. So difficult in two ways. Firstly, there's a specific procedure. You, you can only amend the Constitution if there's a specific um, bill. You cannot tag a constitutional amendment to some other bill, like the budget or whatever. Then there's a process of consultation that is required. That will take a few months. Um, and then, of course, you, for most sections of the Constitution, you would need uh, at least two-thirds of the members of the National Assembly to support it and to six of the nine and National Council of Provinces de- de- delegation. So um, if you can do that, um, for all the sections apart from the founding provisions, you can change the Constitution, yes. Now, will changing the Constitution uh, set precedence, you know, in terms of changing other sections to sort of suit the government's agenda at the time? Well, the Constitution has been amended 17 times already. <laughs> so um, it's not necessarily, uh, uh, um, you know, you can't make an, an uh, absolute statement about this. Um, the experts disagree whether it is necessary to change the Constitution Section 25 to have radical land um, redistribution because some people say you can have even land expropriation without compensation uh, in terms of the current constitutional system. Um, That is a debate. The politicians are going to fight about that. Um, But in principle, I don't think there's anything wrong with amending the constitution as long as, of Uh course, as you get the requisite majority and uh, as long as it is a response to something that is really wrong and not for personal political uh, 
to gain something personally and politically. Mm. Now, you've already mentioned that um, the politicians are certainly going to be head-to-head when it comes to this one. But uh, um, apart from the politicians, you know, the general public um, has had their bit to say about this as well. And really, we're seeing a lot of conflicting um, uh, opinions around it. Uh, Do you think that government is handling this issue properly? Well, uh, my problem is really that we don't really know what we're talking about because they ha- uh, what we haven't seen is there is no proposal yet. So maybe because I'm a lawyer, I would like to see the text for the uh, proposed amendment. We don't have such a thing. So we don't, it's very difficult to know whether something is good or bad, how you feel about it, if you don't really know what you're talking about. So mm-hmm. in the, at the present, we're talking about many other things mm-hmm. Um, and so that makes it a little bit more difficult, and I think that it, it could have been handled better by being more precise and more clear. This is why, this is what, this is how. Mm-hmm. That hasn't really happened yet. And then we can discuss whether that's a good or bad idea and consult the, the public and everybody and so on. Mm. Now, of course, you've mentioned it is still early days, but um, should the process go ahead, uh, do you believe that this will really test the strength of the country's democracy? Um, I'm not sure it will, you know, it depends um, what. It's once again, it's, so, it's almost impossible to know what will happen mm. because the, there is not a firm proposal on the table. So without that, uh, I, I'm a little bit nervous. I always joke and say that I'm not a clairvoyant, so I can't really know what will happen uh, and even, uh, or even predict properly because there's not enough information. And that was Professor Pierre Force, South African constitutional law expert, on the line talking to Zikona Miso. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people, and we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Channel Africa, leading the Women's Month conversations. A two-day leadership forum is taking place in Lesotho starting today. The National Leaders Forum is geared at reforming the country's key democratic institutions. Now, leaders in the Southern African Development Community region have threatened to take unspecified action against Basutu leaders who scuttle the forum. A strongly worded communique released at the end of the Regional Leaders Summit in Namibia last week expressed that SADEX is unhappy with the slow pace of reforms in Lesotho. This hardline stance follows opposition parties' withdrawal from all processes related to the reform in a show of disquiet at uh, you know government's refusal to end the prosecution of former Deputy Prime Minister Motejwa Metsing for alleged corruption. Now, Metsing, who has been holed up in South Africa since fleeing the country last year, wants government to guarantee his safety and also drop an extradition request made to Pretoria last December. Dr. Anthony Kappa is a political analyst at the University of Lesotho. The significance is that it will mark the beginning of the reform process in Lesotho. Probably they will be talking about the processes that have to be followed in the reform process together with the structures that are going to be put in place and ensure that the reform process goes on. That is our guess because the, the agenda is not really known yet. In your opinion, what has delayed the reform process? Because it was supposed to have commenced as soon as uh, Prime Minister Tom Tavane took over as um, head of state. What has delayed it is that uh, there doesn't seem to have been political will to implement the reform, especially on the side of uh, those who were in the previous government. They have been putting a lot of demands on the government, and government has always been saying some of the demands were unreasonable. Some of those demands were that people who are now in custody for allegedly having committed serious crimes like murder should be released and uh, be given amnesty. And many other conditions they were putting forward to says the, the, the reform process cannot continue unless their conditions are met. And government has always been very adamant that uh, it is not going to compromise rule of law
it will allow the court processes to continue while at the same time continuing with reforms. So what has delayed the process has been biting in between government and opposition on the demands of the opposition and then government trying to, 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 to convince opposition that some of those demands couldn't really be met. That was that. Exiled opposition leader Motejome Singh is not joining the leadership forum. Would you perhaps know the reason why he has refused to attend the forum? Mr. Nezing has been saying he wants security guarantees from the government that uh, if he comes back, his security will be guaranteed. Government will give him security 24 hours. And government has always been saying it is prepared to do that, even if it meant asking for security from SADAC. In other words, it was saying Mesonazine himself should even decide who should uh, provide security, whether it should be the police, whether it should be the military, whether it should be SADAC. They have been saying that. The government saying, we guarantee your security, we'll give you security, you just tell us the kind of security you want, we'll give it to you. But uh, he was also making demands that cases, pending court cases against him, there is a case currently before the anti-corruption agency in Lesotho here about uh, him disclosing the sources of some of the monies that were deposited into his accounts. And uh, he has been saying all those cases should be dropped so that he can come. And government was saying, no, there is no relationship between people's uh, court cases and reform process. So he has always been reluctant to come home, arguing that uh, he has to be given security and the, case, the charges against him and together with those people who are with him outside the country should be dropped. That was the reason why he hasn't been coming. And that's Dr. Anthony Kappa, a political analyst at the University of Lesotho, speaking to Iltongo Rib. The time is now 17.22. And just a quick reminder on how you can get in contact with us. If you want to send us any comments uh, with regards to our show, the email address is info at channelafrica.co.za or you can WhatsApp us to 763003327. And if you're outside of the South African borders, be sure to use that international dialing code, which is plus 27. On Twitter, it's at Channel Africa. One. Now moving on to Kenya right now. The Kenyan human rights defenders took to the streets of Nairobi today to protest against the continued detention of prominent Ugandan musician and opposition member of parliament Bobby Wine. Now more from James Shimanyula who was at the scene of the protest in the, can- in the capital uh, of Kenya. Hundreds of Kenyans demonstrated in Nairobi pushing for the release of Ugandan musician Bobby Wine. They sang songs in praise of the musician here in Nairobi, singing freedom songs and songs to praise the musician that the court has ordered should be remanded in custody until the 30th of this month of August when he will appear in court again for the magistrate to make a ruling whether or not he has to appear before a judge. Bobby Wine's music is still up in the air and with more of it coming shortly, let us cross over to the northern Ugandan town of Gulu, where a magistrate ruled that the musician should appear before a judge at the end of this month. And others in similar condition are allowed to access their private doctors at any time. You are nearby reminded until the 30th day of August. The others that the magistrate is referring to are dozens of Bobby Wine's supporters who were arrested and are to appear in court on charges of treason, the very charge preferred against the musician. The magistrate's words were greeted by shouts of people's power from a huge crowd that had thronged the Gulu chief magistrate's court in northern Uganda. Here in Nairobi, hundreds of human rights defenders took to the streets to demand the quick freeing of Bobby Wine. 
speaking to a huge crowd that had speeches from various human rights defenders. One of them, Al-Amin Kimathi, said time had come for the people of Uganda to be freed from President Museveni's dictatorship. This is now the call for the freedom of the people of Uganda, the, for the end of the military rule that has been disguised as a democratic rule in Uganda. The march here now is to call for the release of all political prisoners in Uganda. The young people of Uganda are showing the way. And another human rights activist, Boniface Mwangi, who organized the street protest, did not hide what he described as the start of the fall of Museveni from power. We are here in the streets of Nairobi today as young Kenyans, and we are here in solidarity with the people of Uganda, and Bobby Wine has been arrested in Uganda. We are saying that Uganda must be free from the dictator who is called Museveni. Museveni has been in power for 34 years. He has refused to leave power. These are many the constitution to actually remain in power, but you are tired of those kind of dictators. He's one of the last many dictators in East Africa. Most of them have fallen. And so we are saying that Bobby Wine must be free, and Museveni must go home. And we're telling Museveni, Museveni is afraid of Bobby Wine, who is one man. Bobby Wine is about an idea called people power. And people power can't be stopped. People power can't be jailed. You can't jail ideas. You can't kill ideas. So Museveni is afraid because he's going to fall. And he's afraid of Bobby Wine. Bonifas Mwangi, one of Kenya's prominent human rights defenders. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. government of Tanzania have directed uh, regional medical officers and other public authorities across the country to strengthen surveillance in an effort to prevent Ebola outbreak in the country. Tanzania's Deputy Minister for Health and Social Welfare, Community Development, Gender, Elderly and Children, Dr. Faustine Ngudulile, uh, told Channel Africa that the alert is made following confirmation of the outbreak of the killer disease in the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo, otherwise known as the DRC. Now, the East African country is bordering uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo in the southwest. Now, Gabriel Zakare reports from Dar es Salaam. It is the second time for the East African country to issue alert to the public following an outbreak of the disease in the neighboring country DRC in the year 2018. The first time warning was made earlier May 2018 following an outbreak of the virus in the Democratic Republic of Congo, whereby a number of confirmed deaths at Ibikoro in the equatorial province of the war-torn Central African country reported. Despite of no case or patient being reported so far to be affected by the virus in Tanzania, the health and the social welfare Community Development, Gender, Elderly and Children Deputy Minister Dr. Faustin Dugulile says the country has deployed already surveillance measures across the country. Tanzania is on a high alert because of the outbreak of Ebola in the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. And we've already taken some measures to make sure that the borders in Tanzania are well protected to ensure that uh, whoever comes in with, with a suspected case of Ebola are handled properly. One of the things that we've done, we've strengthened uh, border surveillance. Uh, we screen all people that are coming uh, from the neighboring countries of, uh, of DRC. But we've also made uh, preparations for isolation centers in case a suspected case enters the country. We've formed and educated our, our health workers and also the general public about uh, the, the symptoms and signs of Ebola, but we also made uh, available personal uh, PPE, personal protection equipment. Dr. Ndugulele father says until now there is no any case of Ebola documented anywhere, but insists that the country is not immune from the viral disease due to the possibility of cross-border transmission from the affected countries. Uh, interests of people between Tanzania and uh, the uh, DRSC there's so many people coming coming and going from Tanzania to DRC and DRC to Tanzania. So, and we have a huge, we share also a huge border. But again, the way the outbreak has occurred this time around is very close to Tanzania. So that's why countries that are bordering DRC, and especially this particular area, 
are, are also vulnerable to 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 uh, to persons suspected to Ebola uh, crossing borders and coming to Tanzania. Uh, and uh, and uh, as you know, Ebola is a very fatal disease and it spreads quite quite uh, fast and quickly. So we need to be on high alert to ensure that uh, in case. Is a case that's coming to Tanzania. We are in position to, to address that. In the year 2017, Tanzania launched the National Action Plan for Health and Security as one of the long-term measures to control emerging and re-emerging infectious disease such as Ebola. A number of Tanzanians who spoke to Channel Africa are not aware of the disease and how they could stay safe from being affected by the pandemic disease. My opinion, I think more education. Uh, educative programs are uh, needed to people to um, uh, increase aware some of the disease. During outbreaks of the disease, um, some measures are taken um, uh, to airports, uh, to scanning people, but uh, in fact, deeply we didn't have any critical measures to prevent people or to make people aware, especially the people who are living in neighboring uh, regions, sharing the border with the DRC, Rwanda, where more education is needed to people, rather than uh, informing them and sometimes uh, 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 threatening news that uh, it is deadly, deadly. Seeing that other countries have been affected, like Sierra Leone, Nigeria, they took measures on overcoming this problem. Hence, I also would suggest that our government should address this situation because if it just comes, it's still bad because when you check, Tanzania has more than 51 million people. So this issue has to be addressed before before it even enters the country. Especially the people must be aware about these diseases, what causes these diseases, and moreover, what are the symptoms? Because the symptoms are very much important. Many of the Tanzanians, they are not aware of Ebola because uh, uh, we just see, uh, hear about these diseases that there is a... Uh, uh, it affects many peoples in uh, Congo, DRC, and the other countries of Western Africa. But for Tanzania, our government uh, have been announced or uh, tell people to take a, a precaution about this uh, disease. The country is also signatory to the International Health Regulations of 2005, which guides countries in tackling threats to national and global health security. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. 17.32, it's time for us to find out what is happening in the world of news and the headlines with Onel The U.S. Department of State is doing damage control following President Donald Trump's tweets about South Africa's shifting land policy. Kenyan human rights defenders have taken to the streets of Nairobi to protest against continued detention of prominent Ugandan musicians and opposition member of parliament. And Zimbabwean pol- police have arrested a critic of Emerson Nangagwa on charges of insulting the president in a Facebook post. Channel African News, I'm There have been mixed reactions since South Africa's Health Minister, Dr. Aaron Mutsualedi, published a piece of legislation that, if passed into law, will tighten the grip on how cigarettes and other tobacco products are sold, marketed and regulated in the country. The tobacco and electronic cigarette manufacturers have since launched an aggressive campaign against the proposed tobacco control bill, describing it as a threat to people's freedom of choice. Now, some campaigners for the promotion and create, creation of smoke-free spaces have thrown their weight behind the new legislation, saying it offers people better protection against tobacco-related diseases, especially cancer. Now, smoking remains a leading cause of premature preventable death in South Africa. Tobacco kills thousands of South Africans every year. More from advocate Patricia Lambert, a South African human rights lawyer and social justice advocate who heads the International Legal Consortium at the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids in Washington, D.C. You know, over the past years, South Africa's tobacco control legislation has been at a standstill. And as a result, we are not seeing the reduction in tobacco users that is necessary. 
And in addition, the electronic cigarette industry and the tobacco industry are introducing new products into the market, and those products could also harm people, and the new legislation is seeking to curb that harm by regulating the way in which tobacco products are sold, where they are advertised, and where they are used. Let's look at the link between cancer and the smoking of cigarettes as well as other tobacco products. How do they really contribute to this growing problem? Traditional cigarettes kill 25 to 50% of all the people who use them and they make a great many people ill. And of course, when those people go into the hospital system, it is often the state that is paying for their medical expenses. Are the numbers of smokers increasing, and what is largely to blame? Well, you know, South Africa used to have very strong tobacco control legislation. And the moment that the legislation was passed, we began to see a gradual reduction from around 34% of South Africans who used to smoke till 18% in 2012. And since then, that number has stagnated. So in other words, we are not seeing the reduction in smokers that we need to see for a healthy population. Should the bill be passed into law as it currently stands? Is there evidence that the planned interventions will work? You know, do you think that they can offer better protection against tobacco-related diseases like cancer? Absolutely. Let me give you one example. South Africa still allows smoking areas in public places. Now, this sounds at one level as if it is giving smokers some choices, and that it may be doing. But what it is not doing is giving workers choices. You know, when workers have to go into smoke-filled rooms in order to do their jobs, and that includes restaurant workers, bar workers, workers in homes, where they are providing domestic services or childcare services, when they go into smoke-filled homes, they are putting their lives at risk. There is a clear scientific evidence that second-hand smoke can be fatal to other people who do not smoke. Are there parts of the legislation that you still have reservations about? You know, any piece of legislation under draft The legislative drafters provide the best language that they can, and then that language is shown to the public and to other lawyers, and I'm sure that there may be tweaks to the legislation, but the legislation as it stands now is an excellent piece of legislation with, as I said, a few tweaks that will serve to protect the people in South Africa from secondhand smoke and will assist the South African government to ensure that smoking and the use of electronic cigarettes is denormalized. This is not a normal thing to do. Do you think that a piece of legislation such as this one is long overdue in a country like South Africa? Yes, absolutely. It is very long overdue. As I said to you, South Africa, when the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control which is an international public health treaty. When that treaty was completed in 2003, South Africa had really good tobacco control legislation that would have put it among the countries in the world that were fulfilling their obligations made under the FCTC. But that is no longer the case. Countries all over Africa and all over the world now have 100% smoke-free public places They have banned advertising at the point of sale because these things encourage young people to think that smoking or using e-cigarettes is normal when it isn't. Some people will argue that it's well and good to have some of the most advanced anti-tobacco legislation in the world, but it's worth nothing if we don't enforce it. What does one do, the general public, I mean, if they see the law being broken? Well, the law is designed to be self-enforcing. In other words, the owner or the person who runs an establishment, that person has to post signs to say that no smoking can occur on these premises and then has to ensure that people do not smoke on the premises. I think my biggest issue is that young people are being enticed by the tobacco industry and by the vaping industry, by the e-cigarette industry 
to use products that they never need to use. And those products are addictive, they cause health harms, and they really can cause death. That's advocate Patricia Lambert, a South African human rights lawyer and social justice justice advocate who heads the International Legal Consortium at the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids in Washington, D.C., on the line talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Nigeria has been urged to take the issue of meeting the well-being of displaced persons and aid workers seriously to make the job easier and life bearable until there is durable peace to engender... uh, proper resettlement of victims. Now, the call came from the coordinator of the United Nations Humanitarian Services in Nigeria, whose name is Edward Cologne, uh, at the conclusion of a tour of some of the IDP camps. Collins Otehengbe reports. The 2018 activities marking the International Humanitarian Day may have been over, but eye-opening issues trailing the well-being of victims, including the humanitarian workers, have caused a grave concern that cannot be ignored. One of the if affected areas like Goza community in the northeast of Nigeria where Boko Haram has made the lives of people unbearable had tales of lack of water which is essential for sanitation and life sustenance. The United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator in Nigeria, Edward Callon, says various opportunities available will have to be combined including the congestion of camp to make the situations there manageable. We have to combine various um, opportunities that exist here. Looking for areas where we can get productive um, um, uh, water systems and also looking at other options like the water water catchments, um, uh, developments, etc. So we have to look at various approaches. But it's also critical that uh, we work towards decongesting the camp so that we can reduce the pressure. What is clear to me is that water trucking is not sustainable. We have to look for other solutions. Remarkably, the governor of Borno State, which has been on the receiving side of the terror attack, Kashim Shetima says, with the situation at hand, plans are on to decongest the camp and make room for the displaced persons in places where water will be adequate and available. We can decongest Pulka. Pulka has 94,000 people with limited water resources. And Pulka is part of the Kerekere formation. And there is this challenge of extracting underground water in that Pulka axis. But here in Goshe, there is enough water resources to meet the earnings and expectations of the people and for our people to pick up the pieces of their lives. How daunting has this job been for AIDS workers who have given up their own well-being to provide humanitarian services to people in war-torn zones and disaster-prone communities across Nigeria. The chief executive officer of CESO, one of the NGOs which are being in the eyes of the storm in Northeast, here, Jonathan Shava, says the work keeps increasing in the midst of increasing numbers of displaced people and poor management of resources. Um, definitely, there is a sense, um, I think, the problems are getting bigger. One of the things we always say is the work not the finish. It's, it's just there, you know, and it's increasing in number. So it is frustrating, but the nature of the work is such that, um, you know, you, you take a deep breath and you just keep going. And I personally think from what I see, from the way it's being managed, from what the government's focus is, ah, focus is election season, it's not going to get any better any soon, sadly. There are a lot of displaced people across Nigeria and there's a lot of focus on the northeast. And so I would not say that it's improving. In fact, it's getting worse. Um, and we're not managing our resources very well, especially the government and government officials. A lot of them seem focused on the wrong things and their sense of it, it sound bites we hear. We're not seeing that radical action that we need to see on the field. The Director General of the Nigerian Emergency Management Agency, Mustafa Mayhaja, condemned the situation where human rights workers have become the target and says things could change because they are working for the good of humanity. Humanitarian workers should not be the target of any form of attack. They are working for humanity. They are neutral and impartial. We want to commend all the humanitarian actors who have been working to ensure that the insurgency in the northeast of Nigeria is brought to an end. The problem that is bothering the aid workers is the absence of adequate security to protect them and the victims themselves. A.I. Jonathan Chava says the situation affects the morale of workers, but they are kept on the field because of the need to serve humanity. In every country, the primary responsibility for security lies with the host government. So, for example, in Nigeria, the primary responsibility lies with Nigeria. 
So there's a lot of responsibility on the part of the government. I feel that the UN in Nigeria needs to be a lot more, um, to be a lot more harder hitting with our government in calling them to these responsibilities. Um, because it's not just about UN workers, it's about other NGO workers that are at risk. And we've gone into certain areas, for example, you go into some camps, for example, there's not enough protection, even for the victims themselves. You're going in there as an aid worker. I mean, I was in Agatu in March, for example, and here we are shouting there's an anti-grazing law in that state. Um, people were there, there was not much protection, and there were just cattle all over the fields. The time is now 17.45 Central African time. I know that a lot of people in South Africa have been complaining about the rising prices of pretty much everything. So I hope that Wissani Matebule has got some good news for us in The Economics. Thanks, Samora. Good evening. I don't have any of the good news. It's, we're starting with bad news, bad news, and bad news. First, economists saying there is one in three chances of a recession in South Africa this year. South Africa's economy has struggled to gain traction in the second quarter after shrinking at the start of 2018. The South African Reserve Bank and it's a, at its last MPC meeting in July focused that the economy will expand by just 1.2% in 2018, sharply down from a 1.7% projection which uh, they focused in May. The first quarter marked South Africa's worst quarterly contraction in nine years. And ESCOM state-run power utility, ESCOM, expects to have 7,000 less staff in five years from now, meaning they are going to retrench incrementally people who are working for the company, up to 7,000 of them in about those years. Cash trap ESCOM is critical to Africa's most industrialized economy as it supplies more than 90% of its power and is one of its most indebted state firms. ESCOM has powerful labor unions, some of them aligned with the ruling ANC, others more militant that have said they will resist attempts to cut the workforce and fight moves to privatize their company. ESCOM has 18 billion US dollars of state guaranteed debt and is often cited as a threat to South Africa's credit ratings. And then Woolies, South African retailer Woolworths, uh, posted its first full year loss since 2002. The revaluation and transformation of its uh, David Jones brand cost the company more than 514 million US dollars. The company reported a 20% slump in profit. And last year, Woolworths posted its first annual decline in profits since 2009. This year has been even tougher as investment to grow market share in Australia backfired. CEO Ian Moyer. I suppose it goes back to forgetting who your customer is. And we tried to go too young. Um, we made too much of our offer all about a young sub-brand. And then within that brand itself, we had too, too many items. They were too fashionable. They were too short. The prints were wrong. Colours were wrong. Our 45-year-old core customer was coming in and saying, you know, this is not for me. What's happened to Woolies? You know, where are my great basics? Where are my class- Where's my classic offering? We just didn't get it right. We moved back to, you know, less fashion, less young, more appropriate. We've gone back to the great building blocks that uh, Woolies is famous for. And the British government has warned of higher credit card change charges uh, and restricted access to bank accounts in the first installment of its advice on mitigating consequences of a no-deal Brexit. The document covers sectors including farming, finance and medicines. The BBC's John Pinar reports. Again and again, the Brexit Department's guidance refers to the unlikely event of leaving without an EU deal. But the minister in charge, Dominic Raab, conceded it could happen. So in just the first tranche of advisory papers on how to handle that outcome, the list of new homegrown rules and regulatory agencies was huge. Yet the Brexit secretary insisted a deal was in sight. And even if there's no agreement, the EU would cooperate widely, not in Britain's interests, but in its own. A South African competition watchdog has given Glencoe's bid worth roughly 900 billion US dollars for Chevron's local and Botswana assets, the green light. But the competition commission placed a number of conditions on its approval, including the preservation of jobs after the deal and establishment of a fund to develop small businesses.
Financial indicators now, the dollar stronger against Botswana Pula at 10.47 at 9.99 against the Zambian Kwacha and BRICS currencies also stronger at uh, 405 Brazilian Real 67.76 Russian Ruble 69.78 Indian Rupee 6.84 Chinese Yuan and at 14.29 South African Rand. Commodities gold $1,190, platinum down $781 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $74.65 per barrel. That's how it's looking. So Wisani wasn't joking when he said he had bad news for us. I think I might have a headache after all of that bad news. But right now it's time for us to find out what is happening in the world of sport with Musubudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. South Africa's 2018 Two Oceans Marathon champion and the Comrades Marathon gold medalist Helda Stein has been invited to join the elite women's field at this year's New York City Marathon. The women's field is seen as one of the most competitive ever to compete in the Big Apple. She will be up against a star-studded women's open division that includes the likes of three times a New York City Marathon champion Merikitani of Kenya, London Marathon champion and Kenyan Vivian Chariot, 2017 New York City Marathon champion Shalane Fan as well as this year's Boston Marathon champion Des Linden. Now the marathon takes place on the 4th of November. Meanwhile, the International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach today declared that the Tokyo Games will have a more urban and a female focus. The Tokyo Games will be held in July and August in 2020. Bach says the events will be in the heart of the city, taking sport to the people rather than being held in remote or difficult areas to reach. Now, the ROC also said that the 2020 Games will see the highest number of women competing at an Olympic Game event. On to local athletics news, Zimbabwean athlete Rotendo Nyahora says she's looking forward to the sixth and final leg of the Spa Women's Race. The race takes place at Marks Park in Johannesburg on the 7th of October. Nyahora currently lies in third position on the Spa Grand Prix log behind South African Glendro Skaba, who is in first position, while countrywoman Rudo Mohodarawa is in second position. Nyahora started the season with a number of injuries, but she seems to be happy with her current form. Yeah, like this year I had a tough year, that's what I can say, because um, my previous part, it didn't go well. Like the first part, I was pushing 13, the second part, I was pushing, uh, the first one was pushing 14, then the second one I was pushing 13. My heart was very sore, because, you know, I know myself, I'm a front runner, and I had a hamstring, like started last year, uh, December. I try like to go to the physio, trying everything cause just to see myself running. Cricket South Africa and Netball South Africa today launched the Joint Development Initiative in partnership with the Department of Basic Education to accelerate transformation in South African sport with relevance to school sport. Now, the initiative will enable the two sporting codes to share usage of sports facilities in Cricket South Africa's community hubs and Standard Bank Regional Performance Centre. Now, Cricket South Africa's General Manager of Cricket, Hori Fansel, says it is key for the federations to join and utilise these facilities. Part of that, um, of this whole program or this plan of the facilities, we all know that there's a lack of facilities around the country. The most important part is how are we going to to address that lack of facilities. Um, And we'll have to have a totally open mindset about what the facility should look like. Um, How can we partner with existing facilities in order for the game of cricket netball to be played. At the same time, President of Netball South Africa, Cecilia Molokwane, says nurturing sports talent needs to start at the grassroots level. I think it's a challenge for both Netball South Africa and Cricket South Africa to put the best of the best coaches in these hubs. When we want the best sportiers, we must put the best at grassroots level. Because if they don't get it right at the beginning, it's going to be a problem when they grow up. Remember internationally, netball players, we don't play on your normal all-weather courts. We, we play on a sprung floor.
This is a beginning. I'll leave you there for now. I'm back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. And that is how we wrap up the first hour of Africa Digest today. Be sure to join us for the second hour at 7 p.m. We're going to be available uh, online as well as on the DSTV Audio Bouquet, channel 802. So from myself, Samora Magesi, producer Leander Maume, and uh, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments on the show, be sure to send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or you can send us a WhatsApp to 7630033327. That is 7630033327. And if you're outside of the South African borders, be sure to use that international dialing code, which is plus 27. You can also tweet us at channelafrica1. And whilst you're there, don't forget to follow us. Taking us to the top of the hour is Tembalami by DJ Merlon featuring Soulstar and Mondling Mobile. We're going to see you later. Bye. Malakali Pali Wenti Zwaniyami 
Mu randire moni wandema inunonse amene 